And so then, dear friends, in Christ's grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So now we are on the final week of our reflection on the book of 1 Corinthians. I encourage you to go to page 1222 uh, in the Pew Bibles to look at 1 Corinthians 15. Or if you look at the Bible on your phone, it's just 1 Corinthians 15. So we've been looking uh, at this letter to Paul's planted church in Corinth. And uh, after he then received a number of reports of things going wrong in this church, he then wrote a letter to this church addressing these problems, uh, their struggles, their failings. Uh, I've kind of broken it up into various sections. We started off looking at unity in the church, but then we also looked at the next section that uh, how they were allowing things and doing things for outward appearances. And then last week, what we looked at was how they are called to love one another in the church. And now this week, we are reflecting on the resurrection. In studying this book, I find it kind of helpful to have um, a unifying theme of the whole thing. And so as I've been studying this, what is that unifying theme? Uh, as I think about this more and more, I think that this is really focused on Paul is calling them to live this new life in Christ. So, as we thankfully, and many of us do know, that Christ has come, he has died, he has risen. As we read in other letters of Paul, especially like Romans, we hear of this transition from death to life through gifts like holy baptism. And that life now is where we are, where many of us are sitting, and where we are hearing these words from 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so this is the problem, is that that new life that they've been given in Christ, they are not living that life, right? They're not uniting with one another, but they're allowing various teachers to tear them apart and go into different factions. They're not living free from sin, but are rather living worried about how they look to the outsiders, and even using outside methods, we hear of them suing each other. And Paul says, no, you, you figure that out inside the church. Uh, and last week, it was kind of a huge section, but all focused on <clears throat> the fact that they are not loving one another, especially that huge focus in um, chapter 11, where the, they're celebrating the Lord's Supper and it's in such an ununified and unloving way that it's actually to their detriment. It, it's, it's bad for them because of how they're observing the supper. The struggle that I have now as we look at the resurrection is, why has Paul waited so long to talk about this? Because as far as I understand and as far as I am concerned, this is the key for so much in Scripture throughout this book, Paul, is calling on them to center themselves in, in Jesus, in Christ, and in all that he has done for them. But yet, I think that the key for even Jesus himself is his resurrection. So let's, let's look at Paul's argument. He starts off by simply saying, hey guys, I'm not giving you anything new. This is not some divine revelation that the, the God opened up the, the, the heavens and spoke to me and only me, and I'm letting you know this. No, that's, that's not the case. I'm giving to you what you have already heard. You already know this stuff, right? And it's, look at how it's written, uh, verse 3 and on. It's almost written like the Apostles' Creed is written. 
For um, <clears throat> Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised. It's kind of just, these are the ABCs of our faith. You guys know this stuff. But look at how he's, he's saying this. It's not some new teaching. We recall back to the first chapter where they had a whole bunch of different teachers and they were saying, well, Paul says this, Apollos says this, and then Cephas says this. It's not like that. He's saying, we're all saying the same thing. We're all coming to you with that same thing. It's not a new teaching. And it's not even a new teaching from Christ himself because the scriptures themselves have attested to this. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We hear the first proclamation of how God says he will take care of things. It's a little bit of a strange image, but we hear of the serpent's head being crushed and the, the descendant's heel being struck by the serpent. It's a strange image, but yet we see that fulfilled in Jesus. We then continue the Psalms constantly talking about this hope being rescued from death, from Sheol and things like that. Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 has a very clear image. Many of those who, are who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We also hear in the book of Isaiah just this constant word of hope where he hopes in this person who God will be sending, especially in 53 where we hear of the suffering servant. None of this is new. We've been hoping in this and holding on to this from the beginning. But we see this brought to completion in Jesus. We have his arrival foretold, but we see him born of Mary. We hear of his, his healing that is to come, but we see that in the miraculous healings of Jesus. We see even his command over creation in a simple and seemingly innocent miracle of changing water into wine. But the fullness of all of this is seen as Jesus is betrayed, abandoned, convicted, killed, buried, and most importantly, risen. <clears throat> There's a reason that we so regularly confess that creed. Because this is nothing new. This is something that unites us to the ancient church since day one. This has been what we believe, what we know. I always think about it like this. He has such mastery and command over all things, he can simply snap his fingers and take care of all the problems. But as we have seen so clearly in Scripture, that is not who our God is. Our God acts. He loves he is involved. He is not removed, but very, very much involved in our world. And so we continually reflect on this story of this Jesus every week, hopefully every day, because it is through this act that our God in the flesh redeems us, gives us everlasting life. And like I said, we continue in this daily Right? This is not just for Easter Sunday that we celebrate the resurrection, but every single day. Because this is the key for us. Nancy said it very well, anyone can die. I can very lovingly say to you that I will take away your sins, that I will be crucified for you. But that would mean nothing. But Jesus has promised that, is crucified, is risen, 
and completes that and fulfills all of these promises. And let me again point out what Paul points out. That this is not just to one person that he appeared, but to many. Verse 5 there in chapter 15. He appeared to, appeared to Cephas. By the way, whenever you see Cephas, that's Peter. He appears to Cephas, then to the twelfth. Of course, at this time, those are the, the, that's the inner circle. There's not twelve right at this moment. Uh, Judas has, has hanged himself, and then um, Thomas isn't there. Then he appears to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You can go and talk to them about this. Though some have fallen asleep, some have passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to Paul. This isn't new, and we aren't the only ones talking about this. As, as Jesus himself attested to it in Matthew 16, 21, Jesus shows that he, to his disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem, he has to suffer, he has to die, and on the third day he will be raised. This isn't new. But somebody is saying that there is no resurrection. And Paul just lets loose on him. In a very clear and logical argument, Paul says, if Jesus isn't raised, then you're still in your sins. And if you're still in your sins, what hope do you have? Everything is pointless. Everything we're doing is, is a waste of time. The dead are dead. And we are to be pitied because we only have hope for the right here and right now. That, that problem of hopelessness is one of the greatest problems in our world. As so many have turned away from God, they then are placed and have placed themselves in different beliefs and ideologies, even in corporations and other organizations. But the sad truth is that they place themselves in places where it doesn't matter if they're there or not. They can be replaced, removed, forgotten in an instant. And it's not like they're just another cog in the machine because if that cog is missing, the machine breaks down. They're not even a part of it. There are... There are meaningless connections that have been made between people, those friendships that are fleeting and broken. Selfishness is the rule. What's the point? But yet, I think that we can see that there is still this spark of light in each and every single person where they are searching for hope, searching for something to hold their hope in and trust in. But unfortunately, they are led astray and they place their trust in people and in human institutions. People are broken. Institutions are human, so therefore broken. And I think that's why we see so many people upset about the current political scheme of things is because it's not going their way. They're placing their trust in broken men and women who are just as selfish and broken as they are. And then they just fall back into this hopelessness. But Paul turns, into, turns to a very important point. Christ is raised from the dead. This has happened. All of these promises have been fulfilled. We know that through the first man, death entered into the world. But through this second man, this God in man... This God in the flesh, 
Sin and death are defeated. Paul then explains how the order is uh, of the end, how it should come to pass, and, and a lot of things that we can get kind of caught up in. But verse 32, what do we do with this information? Well, you know, if the, if the dead are, are not raised, well, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 34 then, Paul says, no, wake up. Wake up. Don't get out of the, that, that old life and get back to this new life as it unites to the other parts of this, of this, uh, this book from Scripture. We do not eat and drink for tomorrow we die, but rather we have this hope and we take this hope and proclaim it to all of the people that God has put around us. We find the people that don't have this hope and we seek to give them this very hope. That if Christ is raised from the dead, then sins are forgiven and life eternal awaits. But then Paul goes into a larger defense of the resurrection with many questions that so many of us still have. What kind of body? What about this? What about that? Now there's nothing wrong with wondering, but it's always important to remember that there's just some things that we don't know. There's very strange ways to describing these things, but Paul really focuses here on the fact that what we do know about the resurrection is the change that will come. It's kind of like a seed. You take a seed and you plant it into the ground. It's very different from what is planted. Right? Most seeds are these, these tiny little things. And when you plant them in the ground, you give them the nutrients they need, they sprout into something wildly different. Sometimes with these magnificent colors. Many of you know my, my wife is crazy about plants. And uh, she was talking to me when we went to dinner about orchid seeds. That orchid seeds are so minuscule and tiny that for a long time they didn't believe that orchids had seeds. But yet many of you see orchid plants when you go to like Hy-Vee, you walk in right by the floral apartment, they always seem to have orchids right there. And they're, they're this gorgeous plant. You see, that's what Paul is saying. What is sown is different from what is harvested. What is planted is perishable. What is raised in imper is imperishable. And Paul also then begins to speak about the, a body, uh, an earthly body and a heavenly body. And this is, this is really confronting the, the Greek idea and the, the Gnostic idea that our bodies are these broken, bad, physical things holding on to this wonderful, eternal soul, right? And that when we die, oh, thank God we are finally separated from this bad physical thing and we can be as our souls in eternity with God. And this is wrong. The whole concept and thing of the resurrection is that what is sown is it also what grows. It's these, these bodies are what will be raised, but raised to perfection. As a staff, we've been doing a couple of word studies, and uh, we did a word study on the Hebrew word for soul, which they use as, uh, in Hebrew, it's nephesh, right? Nephesh is not really just soul, but really an entire person's being, who they are, what makes them them, right? And that's really what it's more like. Your imperfect body will be sown into the earth, but you will be raised perfect, 
but it will be you. It'll be your being. It'll be you who will be raised. It's not this thing of this physical thing is bad and thrown away, but it's this united spiritual and physical being of who you are that will be raised. And then turning to the end of the chapter is this beautiful thing that we see here where Paul describes the perishable and imperishable. And it can be a, a jumble of words in our mouths, but it's so wonderful to read. Because what is sown is perishable, it will die. But what is raised is imperishable, it will not die. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will be raised imperishable. We will have the fullness of the glory of God. And we will live for eternity. And then ring true the words of Hosea 13, 14, and the, the very words that Paul remembers here in chapter 15. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? And it's almost in a mocking tone that Paul brings these words back. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? You've got nothing. We have the victory in Christ Jesus. He is risen from the grave for us to give us eternity. Death, you have nothing. The sting of death is sin. The power of the sin is the law. And as we have looked at the law, the law causes us to see so many things, to see our imperfection, to see how, you know, remember the, the reading from Matthew 5 today. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. It's a disgusting image, but what about if my heart causes me to sin. Should I therefore kill myself? Well, no, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that we are to rejoice in the victory that Christ has given us. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the law. We, we are not judged based on the law, but we are now to follow the law as God's people. These are the, the how-tos. Don't murder but love and serve life. That don't speak ill of your neighbor, but speak well of them. Don't covet the things of your neighbor. Rejoice in what you have. Remember God. Remember his holy day. Remember his holy word. Don't misuse his name or what he has given to you, but call on him in times of need. This is the life that you are now called to live. Because really, as we hold on to this information of the death and resurrection, you kind of go, well, this is great. And as we read in other places of Scripture, there's some people who just go, well, I've got this. I can just kind of sit down and do nothing now. Christ will show up any minute. Uh, not yet. Well, maybe soon, right? And so they, they, just, they just sit down and do nothing. And so here Paul encourages them, as you then are encouraged to follow in the same. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Continue preaching, continue working, continue loving, continue walking in the ways that God has called you to walk in. Because it's not in vain. It's not a waste of time. It's not worthless. Those times that you spend in prayer, not a waste of time. 
Those times that you spend with your family where you remind them of the glory of God, not a waste of time. Those times where you are gathered with brothers and sisters in worship, not a waste of time. Those times where you have shared the comfort that you have in the resurrection with those who mourn the loss of their loved ones, it's not a waste. It's not in vain. You are there pointing to the love of God that is shown in a crucified Lord and in an empty tomb. It is not pointless, but has eternal consequences. Amen? Amen. Amen.